Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 7, Episode 8. Season 7, Time for a Wedding. Let's get this show on the road. For the entire month of November, we just want to remind you that we are offering a 15% discount on all of our Etsy items, right? So there's no discount code. Everything is 15% off automatically at checkout for our Impala pin, that's for the Kansas slide tote, as well as our faith print. We know that the holidays are coming up and we just want to make sure that you have your Supernatural merch for all of your gifts for yourselves or for others right on time. And while we are celebrating... Let us thank this week a little shout out to Sissy869 and OsRC for the lovely reviews they left on Apple Podcasts. We do so really, really appreciate and it helps so much. Now we also have a little bit of a less fun but equally important announcement. We do want to put a content warning on this entire episode. We'll be talking about consent violations, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and rape. And if that's not something you want to listen to, Please feel free to skip this episode for now or for good. We just want you to take care of yourselves. Moving into the episode, I will save our listeners the 10-minute chat we had prior to recording this. (laughs) I was completely caught off guard by the title of this episode being (laughs) Season 7 Time for a Wedding. I thought Mary was just being super, like, anal about titling things. That's exactly what I said. I'm like, I see why you think that, but no, that's not what I did. (laughs) It had me wondering, like, is there another time for a wedding? It led me down a really weird, like, 30-second rabbit hole until Mary was like, no, pat on the head, shut up. Amazon Prime gets the title wrong. It just says, like, time for a wedding, but it's season seven, comma, time for a wedding, exclamation mark. That is the correct title of this episode. This aired, like, probably after or around the time that, like, the cake boss guy was, like, really popular, and they had a like a a title card that was similar to that, where there was like a cake that would explode or something. So, and I believe you said that during the live, yeah. Because like, before you even said it, I was like, oh, I've seen this intro before. I've seen the exploding cake with a logo. Okay, so Drew, you also had some uh, predictions for this episode. Let's take a moment to circle back to those. Pretty sure I assumed one of the people being married was going to be Crowley for some reason. I just felt like. You can't have a wedding without Crowley showing up. I I wasn't wrong. (laughs) You weren't wrong. You're going to tell me I'm wrong? (laughs) I know. That's exactly I'm going to stab him. (laughs) Your original prediction was that Cass was going to be getting married. Yes. So prior to our very commitment moment of, yes, Cass is dead. He's not coming back. That's what I have to live in right now. Despite knowledge I have. Before I knew that was a thing, I assumed it was going to be some sort of like angelic for power wedding thing, like a merging of families from a Game of Thrones type scenario. Clearly wrong. I then had a similar vibe for Crowley. Clearly wrong. I feel like you give this show too much credit. And I say this very like kindly and gently to both you and the show 
But you give this show too much credit. <laughs> I take that as a compliment. I'm an optimist yes. internally. <laughs> you should. Yeah, I, I genuinely do not think I would have gotten to this point but again now that i'm aware of what happened knowing this show i'm not surprised by it sadly exactly like it makes perfect sense that this is how supernatural would choose to depict a wedding and like the fact that i didn't assume like vegas wedding at all in any of my predictions is a fault on my part i think like (laughs) the becky love potion sam that is far flung enough that like i don't think i would have guessed it but like a Vegas wedding was like, how did I not predict that? I'm kind of dreading going into it. I'm trying to like not <laughs> start. <laughs> it's amazing how they take a premise that should be so much fun. And like, I want to have fun with, but without even scratching the surface, just looking at it plain, you're like, oh, this is problematic as fuck. There are stories that are meant to make us feel uncomfortable, right? Like there are stories that are meant to depict people doing bad things in a way that gets us to reflect on on our own lives, right? And I think I think that there are some shows that are very very successful in doing that. I'm just not sure that this episode of this show is doing that successfully. All right, well, let's get started with the recap if we don't have anywhere else to anything else to discuss before we start. No more stalling. Count me down. All right. Three, two, one. Cake boss. <laughs> Knew it. Damn it. We open with the brothers taking a small break from each other, going to each do their own little thing to take a breather and get some t- lay off some steam. And then suddenly Sam calls Dean with an emergency. Get dressed up nice and come meet me at a chapel. And surprise, I'm marrying Becky. Clearly, we learn this is some sort of love potion because of a crossroads deal she made and that our monster of the week is the crossroads demon that Sam is now working with Becky to solve and not with Dean and Dean is hurt and sad and alone, but they eventually all do come together to figure out that it is a demon and the demon is using uh, another demon who's not a crossroads demon to like cheat his deals. But luckily Dean gets the wind of this because of his new best buddy, Garth, who's the best character the show's given us in a long time. And Garth is secretly the hero of this episode. And by secretly, I mean, clearly is. In the end, Becky does ultimately make the right choice and let Sam go. There's a lot to just unpack here, but they're on the road again. Garth is in the world, so everything's better. And we're left with a sour taste in our mouth. Time. Oh, and Crowley, but I, I, I gushed about him enough already. So this episode was written by Andrew Dab and Daniel Laughlin. It was directed by Tim Andrew. It's his first one for Supernatural, and he's going to be directing until season 11. Speaking of the number 11, the show was originally aired on November 11th, 2011. That's 11-11-11. And National Corduroy Day. Thank you for that information. I didn't know that I needed it. It's all the ones in the line, so it looks like corduroy, the pattern. That's when the Secret Society in New York of Corduroy would get together every year. Don't ask me anything more about this. I have a well of knowledge for this for no reason. Let's continue. So the episode opens and we find out that Sam is getting married to Becky Rosen. Yes, Becky Rosen, the Supernatural superfan. Renamed Superfan99, I believe. And Dean is immediately suspicious, as he should be. I think we can all agree on that. I, I don't know how you do this without making Dean immediately suspicious and like clearly something's up because Sam has a change of heart in 11 seconds. 
there's a moment where Becky asks Sam if he's better and Sam goes, uh, now that I'm with you. And it really reminded me of the, like, I love you more than anything line from 408 Wishful Thinking. This is an episode that, like, looks back on another one. Sam says, you know, I went after her, Dean. Maybe that's what's bugging you, uh, that I'm moving on with my life. I mean, you took care of me and that's great, but I don't need you anymore. And we get back to that specific line in the end of the episode when Sam says, you took care of me your whole life and now you finally get to take care of yourself. And Dean looks absolutely horrified at the prospect. Uh, And I think a big part of the perceived loss of Sam this week is also the perceived having to be on his own for a bit. Right. I think that like that's that's the interesting thing that I want to get to is that Dean can't really imagine being on his own without Sam. Right. Like that's just not something that he can imagine, particularly not on his own with another partner. Right. Like that's just not something that he can imagine or fathom. Right. We even see Dean wrestling with the being alone by immediately chatting up someone at a bar, not in a way that seems like he's trying to pick her up, although that kind of is always like an underlying tone there of his flirtiness, but it really seemed more of like a talking to somebody thing and not being alone. And then he can't hunt alone. Bring me Garth. He's afraid of being alone. To be fair, that's Bobby that like sends him Garth, right? True, but I feel like if Dean really wanted to be alone, he would have protested a bit more. That's like a... I don't want a partner. Here's my address. We do meet Garth, like you said, which is such a pleasure. Uh, Although Dean is definitely not impressed at first. Garth is going to become, like, very quickly a fan favorite. Point. (laughs) We've been telling you, right? Like, we've been telling... The whole server has been telling you that you're going to love Garth. And we were right. And I think I made the joke, like I always do with anyone I don't know, that they're a dog. And Garth gives off such dog energy. It's amazing. It's Golden Retriever Boyfriend. Like, that's that's what he's giving for sure. We do get a pre-Hamilton Leslie Odom Jr. Someone said during the live, like, a shame they never use his talents of singing at any point of this episode. How you would do it? I don't know. Have him be the singer at the wedding? I don't know. We also get Crowley. So this is a big episode for guest stars. Speaking of which, he does tell the Winchesters that he told his demons to steer clear of them while they go after the Leviathans. And he also tells them about Dick. And by that, we know he means Dick Roman, but he doesn't really elaborate because he's like, have you met that Dick yet? And all that's all he says. <laughs> and I'm like, Crowley, you're not being very clear. Which Dick? <laughs> yeah, you know, Crowley is loving every moment that he gets to use that joke. Oh, there's going to be many, many, many dick jokes in the latter half of this uh, series, this season. But you know, Crowley met him, had that horrible interaction a few episodes ago, and then immediately was like back in his lair with a notebook being like, every joke I can think of, I'm putting them (laughs) down, none of these are going to waste. He will know my sharpened pen. Actually, Drew, you don't know (laughs) how accurate you are with this one. Oh my God, do we actually find Crowley's book of puns? We do get a very, very, very long written document from Crowley with regards to Dick Roman. So that's interesting. Oh my God, a Dick manifesto. So Sam and Becky's marriage is annulled. So no, Sam Winchester is not divorced. Technicalities, but I understand. Yes. And we do get our first Dean and Garth hug. (gasps) I'm happy you said first. I look forward to many more. (laughs) 
Our theme this week is consent. And so it comes from Latin con, meaning together, and sentire, which is uh, which means feeling, so literally feeling together. Uh, and it means to agree on something or to come to an agreement, which simply does not happen this episode. Like there is no agreement to anything almost in anything that happens. So I feel like we do need to rip the Band-Aid off and talk about Sam first this week because his consent gets violated literally at every turn. Now, when I watched this episode this time around, I really wanted to explore like the relationship between what Sam is going through here with Becky and the sexual abuse that I think he's been subjected to by Lucifer in the cage. So we've mentioned before that Lucifer calls him like a bunk buddy. And I'd said at the time that I saw that line as like a reminder or a threat of sexual violence. So I'm really going under the assumption that Sam did suffer sexual violence in the cage. And I I think this episode is also hinting at that because of how often we see Sam surrounded in the color red, whether that's red lighting or a red background. And it's always when Becky is around. So I think that the red is here to hint that this is happen that what's happening here basically is reminding him of his time in the cage. Tasteless jokes dropped by Lucifer about this already. Like you said, now we get to reckon with it using a character that up until now was meant to basically be a joke character and represent the part of a fandom the show for some reason wanted to shit on, which I think makes this even more problematic. Part of me is trying to parse this as either making it easier to handle or like, I think they kind of just dropped the ball on this one. It's a very clear, linear connection to make. And I love you pointing out the red because it is very jarring and blunt in certain spots and seems like bizarre. But when you relate it to, as you have, his time in the cage, it makes perfect sense. I agree with what you're saying that it, there seems to be a lot of like entanglements in this episode, like the fact that it's Becky who rep- who's supposed to represent the fandom. Like I'm choosing for now to like untangle that, to unmesh it and to look at it kind of separately. But this is what I'm choosing to do. Nobody else has to do that. You don't have to do that, Drew. The listeners don't have to do that. But just for the exercise of what I'm trying to accomplish here, I'm going to like unravel it a little bit. And then I'll talk about Becky in uh, critical time. But I, I completely agree with you that if you take it all together, like it's it's um, it's a tough one to make sense of, in my opinion, anyway. Like it just, anyway. So the first time that we see a lot of red surrounding Sam, it's when he's at the dinner table at Becky's house and Becky comes out of the bedroom in like a negligee and a robe. And Sam is in front of like a red candle and there's a chandelier over him and it's lit up in red lighting. And the wall behind Becky in her bedroom is also painted red. And this is where Sam gets confused for the first time. Or I guess I should say that like he he regains consciousness from whatever the love potion is doing to him, right? And you can tell that it's like he's waking up from some kind of like hallucination. You know, he doesn't really know where he is. He doesn't know why he's there. He doesn't really know who he's with. And that's when Becky doses him again and he's back in his like passive accepting state. And like, first off, losing touch with reality is literally one of Sam's worst fears. So that's horrible to begin with. 
but it's also been like such an important challenge for him this season and it's so completely linked to his time in the cage like I can only imagine that he's thinking that he might be back there so I feel like it was a choice to make it a potion and that be relevant in a second because it needs to be administered like physically given but up until now we've always sort of seen deal magic or devil deals to just be you know and we've seen love spells in action before that did not require a potion so is it trying to make it feel more active on becky's part that she's the one physically drugging him versus some kind of behind the scene magic like it puts sam in a place where it isn't something that is abstract and happening it's something that's being done to him that he is losing his ability to say no he is being literally drugged by an active participant who is not letting him consent to being where he is and there is something in the loss of consent when it is like and like kudos to the show for once for doing this to make it an active role against Sam versus just magic. I think here it might be interesting to think about it as like a loss of agency also, because it's not just that like he can't consent to things like he, he has no agency to say like, I want to leave. I think that's the word I was looking for actually. Thank you here like the deeper problem is that his agency is taken away she takes away his agency uh, and and therefore his ability to consent to whatever is going on and actually the second time that sam comes to you can tell that it's like physically painful for him to remember like again he's got becky's red wall uh in the background and he's like i'm calling dean you know because he knows he needs help and he knows that dean is going to help him but instead of like giving him the help that he needs Becky literally hits him over the head with the waffle iron and ties him up in her bed. And this is where we get the scene where he gets mad at her, and rightly so, right? Like, because again, he's tied to her bed without pants. He doesn't know how he got there. He doesn't know where he is. Like, this is literal torture, and torture reminds him of the cage and Lucifer. And again, if we are, as we are reading his time in the cage, this is probably, unfortunately, very similar. So I think it's important to get it all out, but, like, Sam is clearly facing a metaphorical revisit to the cage. Even if he's not putting it together in the moment himself, we, from the visual clues, can clearly see the similarities in the abuse he has faced. And we are now seeing a Sam who has, once tied to the bed, no longer drugged, having enough agency to now actually speak out against his assaulter. And even though he now has the mental capacity, he's physically incapable of getting away. We are now seeing the no longer the, the loss of agency, not through mental distortion, but through physical restraint. It shows two different kinds of torture, really one where you have no control over your mind and one where you have no control over your body. And I think both for Sam are really troubling and they would be for anybody, frankly. Right. But like we haven't all spent time 
in Lucifer's cage. The mental anguish he is going through when physically restrained. Imagine what his mind is doing behind closed doors when even his own consciousness can't fight back. Now, if we move on to Dean, I don't think that his consent is violated like quite the way that Sam's is, right? Like, I think that was the the biggest part of this episode. But there's something I do want to touch upon, and it's how his relationship with Sam is changed without his consent. And it's even more visible because, like, it happens so suddenly, right? Like, it's literally, like, one day it's one thing and the other day it's something different. But... Sam changes the terms of their working relationship without consulting him, without informing him, really. And for the purposes of this discussion, we're also going to remember that Sam didn't actually do this while in full possession of his faculties, right? So we're not blaming him. We're just focusing on how it affects Dean. So just wanted to make that blanket statement, not blaming Sam for what's going on, just looking at how it affects Dean, (laughs) Very true. Uh, and I, I'm intrigued because I had not really considered this at first. I think it's obvious Becky's actions would have an effect on Dean too, but seeing how it affects Dean, not just in a shit happening, but in a real way, like what if Sam really did do this to him on a day? Like it, like you were saying, let's like forget the Sam not being mentally all there because of magic love drugs, but let's look at the Dean side of it. How would Dean react if Sam legitimately found love and retired? We're, we're going to get there. Because if we look at Sam and Dean's relationship, particularly like their working relationship or their hunting relationship, I think in this case, it's something that they've worked on and they've spent a lot of time like nurturing that relationship really. Even, even when their brotherhood wasn't doing so hot, like they were still working to make sure that they could work together. But in this episode, like Sam like takes all of that, all of that work, all those years and effectively like puts an end to it. He says like, well, Dean, I'm married now. And like this job that we've been doing together our entire lives, well, I'm going to continue doing it, but no longer with you. And there's no real attempt at discussion here. Like it's a statement of fact. This is how it is. And he doesn't even tell Dean, like he has to find out basically when he approaches Sam about a case. And he's told that Sam and Becky are already investigating. And again, I'm not blaming Sam for this, but it really does hurt Dean. And he is very grumpy throughout the rest of the episode. And and with reason, in my opinion. Dean is seeing his brother, who is one of the only people on this planet he truly is close to. Bobby being the other, but it's a very different relationship. Being not taken away from him, but having them choose to leave him behind for someone else. You know, that hurts, even if he knows it's not really Sam choosing to. And then he is assuming something's up. That's a pain you can't just shake off so easily. Like this is really like a realization of a fear. Right, exactly. I completely agree with you. And the thing is, because of the love spell, it happens overnight, which makes it really obvious. And because if Sam had actually fallen in love with with a hunter, for example, like this might have still happened, but if it did, it would have happened gradually. It would have happened over time. Uh, there would have been a lot more time. There would have been more space for conversation, for discussion along the way. And like Dean wouldn't have been so blindsided, you know, like it wouldn't have been a one day we we hunt and live together. And then another like 
I no longer, I only want to see you during the holidays, right? It would have happened gradually. From the second that cake intro plays, like we're all on Dean's side. There's none of the like, maybe there is more to it. No, no, we're all on Dean's side. Something's fucked. It would have happened gradually and would have helped him to alleviate the fear of losing his brother in that he is moving on to a new phase of his life where his brother has found somebody and they can gradually work together and figure out what the relationship looks like for hunting in the future. But like you said, that's not what they get. Yeah. So there you go. I think that this, this episode in this episode, like Dean didn't consent to the, the relationship changing. And that's, that's like a very human thing, right? Like sometimes people change the terms of relationships that we have with them and we, we just don't really get a say. So on the theme of consent, there's also the fact that Crowley comes in pretty strong with like contract rights <laughs> at the end of the episode. And like he reminds us of like a very modern and very contractual version of consent, which is like, we've agreed to those terms. You do this. I do this. You must keep your end of it or people won't trust us anymore. And I, I just think that like this is like, again, like a very like modern corporate apropos version of consent this is like consent the hr form yeah exactly it's like hr consent like please sign this form saying that you're dating like you know what i mean like (laughs) but this is my shit like this is my shit this is that level of like world building i love this is purely just flavor for crowley the way he runs hell and how he sees things and the way he like has an actual code of conduct which is something that kind of is antithetical to like demons. Like you don't really think of demons and following rules. Like like those are puzzle pieces that don't fit together normally. It also like in doing so, he shows a level of respect that one would not normally expect from demons. And ironically acts as a counterpoint to Becky, who is actively breaking rules. She is taking away someone's free will to get what she wants. And we are supposed to see her like, even in the end of the episode, they try to play her off as like still a good person despite doing this terrible thing. And that's, again, not what I'm getting on right now. I'm getting at Crowley. But I love that Crowley, who previously has revealed his wants to rule hell and be the king of hell, still plays by the rules and is respectful of everyone involved, not just other demons, but the humans who make deals with devils. You know? And we even see the extra layer of his respect in telling demons to not do their shit near the brothers because they have other shit to deal with. So let's not step on their toes and we'll be safer. I find that really interesting that you see it as respect because I don't see it as respect. I see it as wanting to keep up reputation. And that's not to say that they're mutually exclusive. But I think that Crowley cares more about his image than he cares about humans. She was glowing, the white gown trailing behind her. The sun setting, leaving the sky a perfectly blushed shade of pinks and purples. Everyone stood as she entered and watched her come down the aisle. It fell so silent as everyone stood and stopped speaking. 
and just took in the sight. She made her way towards me slowly. I waited, watching her as she could not take her eyes off of me. I could feel deep down the truth that this was all she wanted, me here and now. I stood frozen on the spot, my heart in my throat, breathing so fast now. I'm not one to get nervous, but for some reason today, the hair on the back of my neck was just tingling, and my hands were shaking just a bit. She made her way right to me, and she stepped up onto the altar. I reached out a hand towards her as she looked straight into my eyes. My hand was still clenched tightly around the handle of my sword. Her dead black eyes like those of a shark were trained on me as I sliced through her, ruining that poor white dress it wore. Everyone had finally made it out of the chapel. For some reason, the thing ignored everyone else as they got up and fled, but instead came straight for me. I guess I feel kind of special, but at least I didn't cry at this wedding. I can't say the same for the rest of the wedding party. The survivors, that is. So we need to talk about Becky. Specifically, I think that we need to talk about like the role that the show has Becky play in this episode. So we've talked about before on this podcast that Becky is like a stand-in for the fans of the show. And we've taken issue with that before, particularly in 509, The Real Ghostbusters. Becky represented the fans that the show resented that it had, right? Like it wanted a specific kind of fans, but it actually got a bunch of Beckys. And now we've gone from Becky being like a surrogate for fans that the show resents to Becky drugging Sam and taking away his ability to make choices for himself. And as you can imagine, Drew, like this didn't, this wasn't well received by the fandom. And I don't know if it's because it was so poorly received, but we don't see Becky again all the way until season 15. And like, I just don't know that I have much to say about this, or at least like much to add, especially since this is like a recurring topic in voicemail. So we've, we've had, we've talked about this quite a bit before. I will say that beyond Dab and Laughlin, who wrote this episode, the script had to go through the writer's room, it had to go through the showrunner, had to go through the producers, and probably a bunch of other people before it was approved for production. And once again, I'm just, I'm amazed that no one raised the issue of like, hey, fans might not like being compared to a sexual predator. And if someone did, like, clearly they weren't listened to. And so I think, like, I want to emphasize here that this isn't just, like, a writing issue. This is, like, a whole show issue. They believe they have two types of fans when really there is only the Beckys. They have a fictionalized, like, dude bro fan who they wanted secretly. And, like, this was an attack on the Beckys to hopefully regain some level of dude bro audience. Like, it's just, like... You're right. There's no way this went through the any perceived number of people and nobody brought up the idea of the uh do we really want our audience surrogate to be a, like you know like a sexual predator and violate Sam this way. And like the only thing I could think of is they were like no no no, she's the bad fan. We want to bring in the good fans.
This week, we have a message from Amber. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Drew and I are going to be answering the question, have you ever won anything or lucked out for our Roadhouse supporters on our Impala Talk? Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Hi, Marie and Drew. I can't believe I'm actually sending a voice note with how much I hate my voice, but this is what this podcast does to me. I just finished listening to the Monster Movie episode and had some interesting and sad thoughts and connections related to Dean's rehymination comments. I think it's notable that one of the first things he's thought of since being brought back from hell is that he counts as a virgin again. He also directly connects it to his scars from knife wounds and gunshots, which makes a really violent connection between his body and sex, which actually makes a strange Hymet comment clearer. He's basically saying his body has been healed or restored in some way, and then applying that to sex. I think this gives us a rare insight into how Dean thinks of his body, but I also think this is another potential piece of evidence that his experiences with sex haven't all been positive. I believe there is some implication throughout the show that sexual assault is a torture tactic used in hell, which could contribute to his feelings here, but I really want to focus on how much he cares about being a virgin again. I think this implies that his first time wasn't the best, whether he felt pressured into it, unsafe during, or something darker. And strangely enough, this made me think of the scene where Dean takes Cass to the brothel to try to get him laid. He views pressuring Cass into losing his virginity as a fun bonding activity and thinks the situation is totally normal. I can't help but wonder if this is a behavior he's modeling. Also, in the Monster Movie episode, he gets something slipped into his drink and notices right away, which is another reference to Dean being familiar with the sensation of being roofied. To bring this all home, the way Dean, Dean brings up the virginity point with Sam is by saying it's time to right some wrongs. I just thought this was all interesting and gives a little depth to a very throwaway scene. On a slightly unrelated note, at the end of the episode, Sam says the movie Dean would choose to turn his life into is Porky's 2. I've never seen this movie, but I looked up the description and it's a very weird choice. I was wondering if either of you have any thoughts about that. Thank you for your work on the podcast. It really means a lot. Bye. Okay, first off, I'm a witch. <laughs> I saw your face during the, like, like listening, and I'm again, like, a, a few seconds behind you, and I'm like, what are you reacting? Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Ember, thank you so much for sending us a voicemail, even though you dislike your voice. It, it was so, so kind of you to do that. We really appreciate your sharing your thoughts with us. I think especially within the context of this episode, you are completely right that he views he views himself and having regained his virginity as like he as his body being healed or restored. Obviously not to say that sex takes away or harms your body in any way, but I think that some encounters can certainly be more violent than others. And I think that, like you said, we've seen Dean perform certain things 
such as uh, pressuring Cass to lose his virginity that kind of make us think that maybe he didn't have full agency when it came to maybe his first experience or his first few experiences or even all of his experiences, not right? Like, so it's um, an interesting thing to to think about, again, especially within the context of this episode and the fact that coming back from hell, he almost views it as like an opportunity to treat his body differently, like to do things differently this time, you know, like it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Thank you so very much. I say it very often that the show sometimes does something very blunt and beats you over the head with it to make it very obvious. And this now in retrospect seems so obvious that it's what they were trying to say and is what is being said. So number one with a bullet, thank you for beating me over the head with a very blunt object. I clearly didn't hit myself with like I should have. Let me grab the waffle iron. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, what a weird coincidence that it happened in an episode. We're talking about literally Sam's experiences with potential sexual violation in hell. I mean, like, come on. This is Drew. I swear to God, I didn't listen to this, this voicemail. I had no clue that this there's was no way you be could. It. We get, we get so many, like, I know we have a backlog of them. There's no way you could pre-listen and plan this. Like, I mean, if anyone could, it's you, but I know you did. I did not. Um, no, no, no. I don't have the kind of time to dedicate to that. No, but yeah, I know, I know you and, 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 um, and Amber, just to answer your question about Porky's too, uh, we've talked about this in, in the past, so we're not going to go back. Frankly, we're not going to go back because I don't really remember the plot of the movie. Now. <laughs> it's been a while I, that we've talked I, about it. I but. literally, <laughs> as we were doing this, I pulled up the wiki and I was like briefly reading them, like something about the clan and the Shakespeare and a religious man watching porn in a basement. Not even important, a stag film, like. Yeah, it it was it was a bit, it was definitely an interesting choice. I know we had a conversation about it. By the time you get here, you've probably heard it already. So, so yeah, so we've we've answered this question already, and I honestly do not remember. And, and to touch on like one last tiny thing, Amber, um, this might sound really weird, but like I also don't like my own voice. Um, as weird as that might sound for how much I do speak and like recording myself, uh, it, it, you're not alone. You know what? Sometimes it's what you have to say is more important than the voice in your head telling you you don't sound good. So I'm glad you took the time to record this and thank you. And I think you sounded wonderful. Joe, do you have any reflection and call to action this week? I know I've definitely had the feeling that I've like achieved something or earned something, but I don't really deserve it. Uh, or more commonly, as I've learned, it's called imposter syndrome, but I didn't know that for the first so many years of my life. Heck, it happens with this very show, especially when we get like these really sweet voicemails and reviews that are thanking us and complimenting us and like telling them how much they love the show. And like, this is in no way saying don't do that. If anything, I love <laughs> you, please keep doing it. Uh, but the call to action for me this week is to accept praise as I try to accept criticism. If I'm opening myself up to one, I have to open myself up to both. I have to accept that sometimes I do good work and people sometimes like it. Yeah, absolutely. And you, Mary, what's your call to action and reflection for this week? I really felt like Dean's journey in this episode, like particularly when he realized that his relationship with Sam had been changed without like any kind of checking in or notice or even like acknowledgement of how this was going to affect him because it's relatable, right? Like it happens sometimes like friendships, relationships, like, 
they're changing with time. And then one day you realize that like, wow, the other person's vision of like the relationship has changed, but like mine hasn't. And so I'm feeling called first to like recognize when this stuff happens and, and to accept that it can be painful and, and that, you know, then I have to decide for myself if I agree to the, the new terms of the relationship. And like, if I can, then we can carry on. Uh, with adjusted expectations, right? Then there's less emotional suffering when you know that like the relationship is one way instead of another way. And if I can't, well, then there's a need to talk about it openly with the other person and either like negotiate different boundaries or or leave the relationship behind. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, L, Jeremiah Thomas, and Simone. This week, we'd like to thank Amber for her message. You can go to carryingwayward.com for the links to our merch store and all of our socials. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron or a coffee subscriber. You can leave us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcasts. Carry on our wayward friends. Um, there's a part of me that thinks, like, someone may have cheated for me. But it was one of those, like, it was at a GameStop or back when it was still called EB Games. They had, like, the if you spend so much money, you get, like, a little, like, scratch-off card. Um, and there was, like, a few big ticket items. And one of the, not, like, the big prize, but one of the, like, there's, oh, there's, like, 10, there's, like, 100 chances to win $10,000. Um, and I had gone in, and they were, like, you should buy something for this amount and get a thingy. I'm, like, oh, whatever. Like, no, no, you should. And I'm, like... Like, um, okay. And I got the 10 grand.